We talk a lot about syndications on this podcast, and most of the time, these offers are only for those with an accredited status per the rules of the SEC. Now sponsoring the Simple Passive Casual podcast is the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, empowering investors to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages. The AHP fund aims to keep people in their homes by investing in notes. It's an opportunity to earn returns while feeling good about making positive social impact. You can start investing with a little $100. You can learn more at investinahp.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Richard Wilson is a guy who works with DECA millionaires. And if you guys haven't heard of the term family office, it is a term for families that have gotten well beyond that $4.5 million mark. They're more in the $50, $100, $200 million range. So think of it like Bruce Wayne in The Batman. He had Alfred. Alfred did a little bit more than your average family office in terms of keeping him out of trouble, mending him up, and all these gadgets. But essentially, you get what a family office does. They're a consultant that is brought on board basically the kids don't mess it up and the family wealth keeps moving on i'm trying to sort of do the same thing here in hawaii and across my simple passive cash flow nation you guys want to check out my family office offering go to simple slash coaching or go to reialoha.com slash ohana to read about my services where i can help out your higher net worth family definitely probably only applies to accredited investors there but accredited investors and above do things very differently than your average half a million dollar net worth and below. You know, the infinite banking is just a start, but you know, now you're starting to talk about overseas trusts and tricky things like that, that are, I'd probably say unfair. So if you want to learn more about that, shoot me an email at lane at simple passive cash flow. And here's the show. What's up, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners? Want to announce the first multi-day Hui Mastermind in Hawaii. We'll be holding it on my island of Oahu. That's where Honolulu is on President's Day 2020. And that's February 14th to 17th. And a reminder, Valentine's Day is the 14th, but uh, we'll keep that evening free if uh, families and couples want to come on down for that. We're actually encouraging spouses and families to come down um, because that's part of the whole experience getting to know other families and um, getting to know other human members it's gonna be a big part of this um, so what to expect structured networking and masterminding with existing hui investors and other affluent investors um, we're going to create the time and the environment to build real relationships that you can take forward forever and uh, for you A students out there, we'll do, even be doing a full day of networking and mastermind and education. So once again, bring your families. Uh, we're going to have optional excursions such as a luau, happy hours, dinners, and some other activities um, to be able to have fun in the sun. And um, you know, space is extremely limited because my vision is to kind of create this as a more of an intimate environment where uh, we're all one big little mohana here. Um, so come and combine business and pleasure in a little tax write-off. Hopefully you can get that write-off in before the 2019 ends. Those signing up now will be able to get a free one-on-one strategy session that if you want to stick around till Tuesday, we can knock that out or if you're leaving early we can try and get that done throughout the weekend 
But um, hope to see you out in Hawaii. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash hui3. And we'll see you guys here. How's it going, Richard? Thanks for coming on. Good. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Lane. Yeah, so give us a little background, you know, how you got started in advising these centimillionaire families. Sure. Yeah, no, at the start, it was educating myself. I started writing online what I was learning while meeting with them. Realized many of them are not meeting with each other too often. That got me on the front page of the Boston Globe, many different media mentions, which got me speaking invites. So I ended up speaking a couple hundred times in 14 countries, got a book deal with Wiley, bought familyoffices.com to start sharing that thought leader. And then the additional books written and all of the 114 conferences we've hosted now just kind of built on top of that progress. I mean, luckily, the industry has expanded greatly since I got started 12 years ago. So I got a little fortunate being in the right spot at the right time. You know, thought leadership and just providing value as I'm learning has been the main way that things have grown. Yeah, so just so people who kind of left at the bus stop there, what is a family office? What are we talking about? Sure. Yeah, it's basically a solution for those who have a lot more money than the average person who are much more wealthy. And the way I like to explain it is that if you're only worth $100,000 and you make a mistake that's equal to 5% of your net worth, you know, it's just $5,000 mistake. Maybe you could have hired a consultant to help you avoid that and spend. they could spend a couple hours helping you prevent making that mistake again. But if you're worth $100 million or even just $10 million and you make a 5% mistake, it's much more painful. And you could have a part-time person, a secretary, an investment analyst, an attorney, or a project manager that would just help you avoid making those mistakes. And so as families become more wealthy, they're going to be more likely to make mistakes because they're very busy. Everybody's asking for their checkbook, their time to get on their calendar, et cetera. They've got many different business entities, different investments going on, deals going down all the time. They might be overseeing a 400 person team, et cetera. Uh, So they're more likely to make mistakes and every mistake could cost them $500,000 here, $200,000 there, et cetera. So a family office solution gets you family office quality solution providers. It gets you less chaos, less stress, better deal flow, and it allows you to really be more effective at what probably created your wealth in the first place, which is typically not coordinating with your CPA, your insurance advisor, and filling out paperwork for 50 different LLCs and overseeing all of that. So it's a lot more than your basic financial planner gets commissions off something. It's more of a holistic advisor right away. Yeah, for sure. In fact, many times, like one client we're onboarding now is worth around 300 million. And we'll probably be doing six to eight months of heavy estate planning, organizational, accounting, legal structure work before we even focus on the investments very much. We'll try to slow him down on making allocations until we develop a direct investment program with him. And I think it's not all about the investing. In fact, the best investment many of the ultra wealthy can make is in getting great tax and estate planning in place because almost nothing else is going to provide a multiplied return in the same year where you're really just saving so much more than you're spending on that advice being employed. That's usually one of the first items to look at. So based on clients coming to you guys, are you seeing that they are continually growing wealth or is their wealth accelerating in that respect or is it sort of decaying and you definitely see it sputtering out with the next generation? What are kind of the spreads that you see? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of statistics about families losing their wealth over two or three generations, but but, you know, it just depends on what the family's goals are. Some families have goals of giving away a lot of their wealth during their life. Other families have a real goal of passing along entrepreneurial traits to the next generation. Others say, well, next generation decides what they want to do with their life. We're going to have enough so they have education and they can buy their first home. And maybe for a medical emergency, there's some access to capital, but they don't want the generation to have control of the capital. So it really depends on the family. But if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, 
and you want to, you know, make sure you're passing on those traits of hard work ethic and being resourceful, et cetera, then having something like a family bank that has, it's an informal bank, but with formal rules about how maybe the next generation only gets money for school, first house, medical emergency, or a business idea that gets approved by the older generation in the family. And then that way they could buy the chain of three Jamba juices, or they could buy the chain of 10 car washes or start that business they want to start on Amazon, et cetera, but it has to be approved by the family. And then you get the money for the business and profits off the business you're able to keep, but you're not just given a check to go buy Ferraris in a condo in Monaco or Hawaii. Right. right. I think <laughs> something that as I build my podcast um, over the last few years, I'm kind of more getting into the more of the advising side and definitely mm-hmm. helping people get from zero to a million dollars net worth. It seems to be my sort of claim mm-hmm. fame. And that individual, they start working through their 20s and 30s, they're hustling, they have some kids, and they get to about the 50s and 60s. What are some of the planning essentials for someone that hit that pedestal $3.5 million shelf as total net worth? Is it enough to start to bring in a family office or what are the best options for that somebody? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good question. I mean, you can definitely take some lessons from the family office world. Most multifamily offices, the ones who take on 10, 20 or 50 clients, et cetera, will want you to have at least seven to 8 million net worth before they're going to take you on as a client. But if your net worth is growing by a million dollars a year, you can probably convince them to take you on because I know that you're going to be a long-term valuable client to serve. But some lessons you could take, I think the most important one is to separate your thinking and your wealth management and your investing into three compartments. And it helps you focus your energy where you can maximize your return. So traditional wealth management is all about defense, stocks and bonds and commodities and fund managers and diversifying things that are uncorrelated. And that's what the whole wealth management industry talks about. But that's just one of the three compartments. And so typically, unless you created your wealth in that space, you shouldn't be managing that yourself, doing a whole bunch of research and thinking you're going to buy Amazon at the perfect time or buy Tesla at the best time or short this or that. Unless that's your background, you just love that stuff. And that's your whole life. I would just find a best in class provider and a wealth advisor that'll manage that first compartment, which is your defensive compartment of your wealth. And the goal there is not to grow your wealth, it's to make it so that it doesn't get lost in great amounts when the economy goes down. And then it slowly kind of just tracks the market on the way up, hopefully. But no one gives money to a wealth advisor, typically nobody, and they're worth $2 million. And now because of that wealth advisor's great work on diversification, now they're worth $20 million. So None of my clients got wealthy because they had a good wealth advisor. So I think that's important to keep in mind. But that's the first compartment is a defensive wealth management. And that should be a certain percentage of your portfolio, depending on who you are. The second compartment is cash flowing commercial real estate, which is the area you know very, very well. And I always encourage clients to look at things that are already cash flowing that are not too much development, unless for some reason they really like that slant or have an angle on that and is in an area they understand. And usually in this area, they're finding an independent sponsor or a fund manager, or they're using a property manager for a property they buy directly. So they're kind of at arm's length. And most of them don't like to go into funds because they don't know what property they're getting. We like to choose properties one off and work with independent sponsors in that way. But it's a good medium because they're not saying, okay, Mr. Banker, manage my defensive portfolio. They're saying, okay, sponsor, show me four deals a year and I'm going to say yes to one or two of them. And they're keeping some control of where an investment goes. It could be in one suburb of Indianapolis versus another one or one part of Honolulu versus another part that they're more high conviction on that's not overheated or is going to grow more. So that's the second compartment. And usually focusing on two to three types of commercial real estate for at most is a good idea and not going too broad. And then the third compartment is direct investments into operating businesses, which should probably be in the area where you created your wealth. If it's manufacturing auto parts, 
should probably narrow your focus to just investing in that area or in some area that you really, for the next 10, 25 years, you want to be investing in and be an expert in like stem cells or cannabis or something where you're just going to go all in on that, read everything about it, only look at deals there and be a real master of investing in that niche. And those are the three compartments that if you break down your decision-making, then you can see where does it make sense for me to have complete control, partial control, and who can I trust to help guide me on each of those three areas. Right. And, you know, kind of piggybacking on that last category there, something I'm kind of learning after making this whole podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow, I thought the secret to life was just passive cash flow. I mean, you can passive cash flow your way from zero to a million, but you're not going to passive cash flow your way from a million to four million. There's going to be after some kind of thing that you enjoy or some special skill that you're going to have to create a business in some industry that Richard's kind of talking about in that third category. Right. Yeah. I think, I think otherwise it could take a long time. I think that uh, the trick is that all the ultra wealthy clients I serve to get up to really the 30, $50 million level of someone has an ambition to, to really jump their wealth. The truth is that I don't know anyone who's done that by placing a lot of passive bets. You can get sometimes better returns with hard assets behind it by going into commercial real estate. Sometimes that is possible for sure. But if you are not focusing your creation of value into the world and there's something very specific, they can really magnify your returns through your equity stake in it, then it can be hard to get to that ultra wealthy level. But you know, some people are very risk adverse. Some people have needs for high incomes. Obviously, there is no recommendation for all investors out there should take a lot of risk in a very specific area. For sure, that's not good advice. But if, if someone is coming to you, Lane, and saying like, how do I grow my wealth more rapidly? I would say to think in those three compartments and think where it makes sense to apply the most of their control and then find the best in class for the other areas. So every hour you're spending on a project is in the area where you have an advantage over everybody else in the marketplace or you have a unique focus. So you're making progress over competitors or over the market uh, with every day of energy you invest. Right. I think people generally uh, intuitively understand that, but they're like, well, I got to get in general partnership in some of these deals. How do I do that? I'm like, dude, you got to find the deal. You got to run it or you got to add some value, right? People just don't get that. I think some of these times. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I've, I've uh, heard that similar conversation. I mean, I think otherwise you have to be putting up 50% of the deal or, you know, some big amount of the LP base yeah, systematically just, or something. I you know? just click and delete the contact. <laughs> yeah. Kind of <laughs> Other than the 27 weeks of curated content for the passive investor, the new mastermind will offer biweekly power calls with the following format. First week of every month, we will dial in on being a direct investor or Simple Passive Cash Flow 1.0, I call it, which is getting your first rental, negotiating, sourcing, operation, etc. Second week of every month, we will discuss holistic wealth building topics for what I call Simple Passive Cash Flow 2.0 Plus, which is holistic wealth management, syndications, private placements, tax, legal, lifestyle design, etc. Get a sense of this format by checking out the Guide to Taxes video at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash tax. I'll be honest, some things I can't say to the general public because it's too personal and it's not to say bad things about others. Unless you're in the mastermind. One rule we have is what happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. To get in, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey. Don't be left out and join the day. If you've been waiting on the sidelines, this is your moment and not to be taken by an institutionalized education program. Talk about this idea of like integration, right? Synergies mm -hmm. with the 
profession and interest, what are some things that you've kind of tied people together and like, hey, have you tried this idea or this type of business? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Usually I end the podcast with that because nobody ever asked me about it. And they ask me if I have any last things I want to add. And it's that idea of integrity or integration. And I think it's very important for someone who is investing because if your background is a computer programmer or an engineer, then you could add value potentially in that area and look for companies in that space. So a good example is an investor friend that lives here. I live on the island of Key Biscayne. One of my neighbors made his money in debt investing or running a debt platform for consumers. And he wanted to start investing in multifamily properties. And I said, well, one way to look at it is how can you invest in the debt side of the multifamily space? That's where your expertise is. You might come in as a normal LP investor on some deals, but if a sponsor ever wants to structure it as a debt note, or if you can find real estate investment structured as debt notes or come up with a creative structure, it might be a way for you to help people get deals closed. And then you get a X percent return with the collateral of an apartment building behind it. That's an example of playing a unique game in the market place. I've got another friend who helps sponsors by waiting until they close a deal. Maybe the sponsor put up 10% and then three to six months after closing, they will go to the sponsor and say, Hey, I know you're looking to do your next deal. I'll buy out 8% of the 10% that you just put down on your last deal. Now you've got eight out of the 10% that you need on your next one, but they get to then see three to six months of operating history. Are the rents coming in as planned? The person that sell you the property lie about the condition of the units? You know, did everything settle fine at closing? etc. Or are there problems that are coming up, etc. And it allows them to get superior due diligence done because of that unique model they have. And I think it's just important to look at yourself, what others are doing, and try to create a unique game for yourself as an investor. You know, if you're just using someone else's template that's not unique to your DNA and your background, then I think that you're not going to excel. Like your background, for example, is in engineering, right, Lane? That's right. But I don't like to do operations and stuff like that. Right, right. But you might have a unique attention to detail on the due diligence approach and setting up for this podcast. I've never seen someone more organized in doing so with like the links and stuff you had in there made it very easy to work together on on getting this podcast done. And so those unique aspects of who you are could allow you to find things in due diligence that others miss might allow you to walk through a property or look at construction or cost of things, have a much better estimate and intelligent assessment than the average real estate investor. Or because of your unique background, maybe you're able to identify a group of engineering company owners or an insider industry group where the cost to join is very high. So all, the only people who are joining are very successful, making 300, 500,000 a year, or they run a big team of engineering uh, services or an engineering company. And because of that, you're just naturally meeting investors left and right who appreciate that special skill set that you bring to your deals. All right. I think I'll add that you're not going to find this at the W2 day job. You've got to kind of take that leap of faith, kind of like how I did. And I haven't really found that what I personally want to do with my mm-hmm. time. But the, the saying here is the passive cash flow is the simple part. What you do after is, is really the hard thing. Right, right. Well, hopefully it's a combination of uh, something that uses your DNA background where you can make a lot of money and what you're really passionate about. And hopefully those combinations can be something very unique in the marketplace. So with your geographical focus, you only have one or two competitors or no competitors. And I think that if you can use those screens to narrow it down, I found that, you know, you did a a lot of energy goes into creating a podcast like this, but I found that most people won't ever start a podcast. They won't ever write a book. They won't ever go to public talks. And much of the time it's because they're not sure on what they want to stand for or what they want to get done. And if you're unsure about something, then it feels risky to invest your energy into it. But if you can make a decision based on those three 
three areas and you know it's a unique game that you're playing, then you can invest far more energy into it than others are investing in their projects. And then the marketplace will recognize you because of your certainty. You're able to kind of run circles around the competition with what you're putting out and what you're getting done and just the amount of energy that you're infusing into your projects. Right. So maybe we'll switch gears a little bit. The person listening to the podcast, they get it. They're they're kind of actively building a portfolio. They may or may not be taking that next step to building their business. But mm-hmm. at some point, the guys that are listening to this podcast get it. And they're going to be a net worth of a million to $5 million in the next decade or two. You know, it's scary, right? Because you've created all this wealth, yet you're just going to give it to your your kid who's just going to may likely be a trust fund kid. You know, I went to private school, so I know how it works, right? I see all these right. kids they grow up and how kind of nincompoops they become. Right. Um, how do you, what is the best mindset for that kind of parent who means well and wants to pass off well the right way or pass on the skills and traits. Sure. I mean, as much as you can, I think encouraging them starting their own business when they're in grade school or high school. Like I had started five businesses before I got out of high school and I had a business in college. I got out of college and started another business. So I think encouraging that, you know, we have our daughters do uh, lemonade stands and uh, they're only two, four and six years old, but they do lemonade stands maybe twice a month. And they'll, I think they made $56 last time. And our goal this time is to make a hundred dollars. And, you know, that is their allowance. And I make them count the money. They have a little cash register. One of them is the salesperson. One of them's the money handler. One of them's pouring the lemonade and, you know, just infusing that into the family DNA. So they're excited about it. And they, they get that, like, we bought the lemonade for $10. That's how much the supplies cost. And then we brought in $56. So we made $46. That's the profits from doing that. It's something as simple as that. And my father took me to business meetings growing up when he was running his business. And I think that helped me I also read Inc. Magazine a lot growing up. So I always were reading about these great stories of people with high growth companies and that got in my brain early on. And and I talk to my girls a lot about what I'm doing in the business and what's going on, even if they don't seem to be listening sometimes. And I think that kind of rubs off on the kids, getting them involved early, putting them in charge of something, maybe buying them a small business or getting them to run something and letting them fail if they need to fail to learn. So do you think that not all kids have that entrepreneurial bug or or all people in general? Mm -hmm. Do high net worth families, they sort of try and infuse that small business mindset, but are they okay with them becoming a dentist or doctor or some more traditional academic? I mean, only a percentage even want their kids to be entrepreneurial for sure. I found that a percentage are okay with whatever path they want to take and they don't even have a preference for them to be an entrepreneur. Even though they were Um, entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, many of them are open to them doing whatever path makes them happy. And then no matter what their intention, many of them fail to direct the kids where they want them to. Um, just like with my girls, I have no idea. God forbid something, they make horrible decisions. I hope not, but they could be anything when they grow up. I'm not sure, obviously, because they're so young. But it's a big challenge for many families just because they have a lot of money. And even if they have been highly intentional about where they want to direct their kids, you can't control all the different variables and they've got a mind of their own. So I think that is a big challenge for many families and communicating what the money's for and expectations around who's going to get what money and why. It's very difficult and it tears a lot of families apart. So I think it's something that's good to be talking about as kids grow up and manage those expectations and manage what are the family values, what are the goals, you know, what are the expectations that people don't think they're going to be inheriting $10 million. So they just drink at their frat for seven years at college and don't worry about their their own career versus really encouraging them to go out and get their own career. But I think also 
as possible, having it be so that the kid has uh, money for school, food, et cetera, but not a lot of money to go on crazy trips and have a Mercedes on their 16th birthday and et cetera, you know, and if they want money, then they need to go earn the money. It's not free. You have to go create value in the world. So, I mean, you guys help the family on the money side, but raising productive adults, that's up to them then. Yeah, we know a couple uh, therapist types that can work through family issues if there's a big problem going on within a family. And we can help put into place governance policies and rules and ethical policy for the family office and help them avoid some major pitfalls. But some families don't have it as a high priority or it's so messed up already when they come to us that they really just need the help of a therapist to address the one son who's a drug addict or something of that nature. All right. So what would you suggest for somebody who has aging parents that has a pretty decent size estate yet they just saved their way to getting that? What would be the suggestion there to take over that estate? Right. Well, I think as early as possible, it's good to meet with an estate attorney, a tax attorney and start structuring things. There are things you can do annually that if you just wait until they're on their deathbed, you'll have missed out on a lot of opportunities to structure things right. And you will end up giving up more to the IRS and you'll pay more taxes than you needed to. If you wait until somebody is terminally ill, I mean, if somebody is 60 already or 65, 70, and you wait too long, then by the time decisions start to be made, there can be questions within the family if the person was mentally coherent enough or whether there should have been a power of attorney. And that can cause fighting within the family, maybe the uncle or the cousin or another sibling thinks that because maybe you're local and like, I don't know you well enough, Lane, to know if you have a sister or a brother or, or 10 of them, but let's just give an example of if it was your parents and let's say you had a sibling in San Diego, but your parents were local to you there in Hawaii. And let's say you are local and then you help your parents work through these decisions. And somehow, even though you think it's totally fair and equal, and that was a whole intent, you think that was a whole settling of the issue. If the sister thinks because you were local, you got a better shake out of it because you got to keep the house or you got to do something extra with the assets and you benefit more than she does, she might be very upset about such a thing. I've seen that happen many times with families. Whereas at the same time, the brother can feel like, hey, I helped the parents Instead of going into senior living, I helped manage their care for seven years because they didn't want to go into senior living. I helped meet with the attorneys 22 times. I didn't take compensation for any of that. So yeah, I'm living in the house because I was taking care of them in the house, you know? So you can see how easily this stuff can turn into like nobody talking to each other for 20 years, you know? So that's the sad part about it is you have to be really careful about it and kind of predict and just like over communicate when these types of things are going to be inevitably happening. Right. One of the biggest things I see that screw people up, the parents, they're very sentimental about this physical house. Mm -hmm. um, it's just always easier if you just would liquidate everything and just do a simple math exercise and divide it by the amount of people. And Right. Or rent it out and, and split it equally by the amount of people. Many times properties haven't been refinanced and ages could be refinanced, a little distribution and then a rental drip. But it totally depends on the family, obviously, and what their needs are and their ages, et cetera. Right. It's just the insight. I think a lot of people, it's sort of the blind leading the blind is the tough part. And between this one, the ten, $5 million zone, it's not... Not quite enough to get somebody on board and like a family office level. But yeah, it's true. I would um 
you know, you bring up a really good point is that until you're at the eight or 10 million level, it's hard to get family office quality solution providers. But because I've seen so many families get such an ROI out of their estate planning tax advice area, it's one area where you shouldn't look at it as a cost. It really should be seen as an investment in interviewing the five to seven trust and estate planners, tax advisors, maybe someone who can do both things within one team and get to know them over one or two meetings or interviews and get the best one that you can get. Because the best one who's used to dealing with decamillionaires, even if you are at 5 million, he's going to know the more advanced planning that could be an option. Where if you go to the guy who seems really nice and is really local to you, but his average client is 1 million net worth and you're at five, he might miss some major things that could have saved saved you a lot on taxes and would have paid for the bill five times over. So it's not smart to choose an advisor in that area based on the cost. It's really a, an investment, right? You wouldn't buy an apartment building because it costs 1 million versus the other one costs 2 million. Like, oh, let's get the cheaper one. It's better to always go cheap. You know, it's about the ROI. Yeah. What What is the typical compensation structure for a $10 million family office or a $100 million family office? Yeah. So usually, uh, yeah, usually it's percentage and usually uh, be anywhere from 30 to 50 basis points on the low end up to 1% of assets under management. But for estate planners, you're usually charging a hourly fee, but then they'll usually have sort of a base retainer and the hourly fees can be 300 to $800 an hour and then associates on their team will be lower. But it's definitely not inexpensive. But there's some wealth management firms out there that have performance fee-based arrangements. So they're not charging you a base fee. They're just charging a performance fee on how your portfolio does while working with them. And that's kind of a newer trend. And are these guys, do they also pick up some compensation via selling certain securities or is that a no-go? It could be if it's disclosed. It's always about being transparent, disclosing everything, disclosing conflicts of interest or even potential conflicts of interest and just kind of over-communicating that with clients. But most wealth advisors just have their wealth advisory firm, although probably about 10% in the marketplace, I have a real expertise in an area like stem cells or self-storage or, or something. And then that might be a reason why clients want to work with them. Say, we're really strong on this. Everything else, we do traditional wealth management. Everything else, we, we find the best in class. But here's why we're best in class in self-storage, et cetera. So a typical client, they'll pay by the hour, let's just say, then they'll come in how often for tune-ups and oil changes? I mean, estate planners and tax attorneys will typically charge by the hour, but they might have a base retainer. So they might charge you 1500 a month or 5000 a month and then have a per hour charge as well. And then that retainer gets you a certain number of hours. For the wealth management firm or a multifamily office type solution, it's going to be more about, hey, we're going to charge, say, 70 basis points on your 7 million in assets that we're going to be managing. And then as that grows, you might get a break in fee once you hit 10 million in assets being managed, et cetera. That's typically pretty much call Richard whenever you want. I mean, uh, I'm glad you said that because here's what happens a lot of the time is that the dynamic needs that you might have could be related to direct investments you want to do, right? So the calling for extra advice on investment decisions that usually occurs because somebody offered you an investment in a multifamily property or an operating business or some new investment opportunity came up and you brought up a sore point for the whole wealth management industry is they're pretty good at diversifying your assets, fund managers, commodity stocks, bonds. I mean, there's 40,000 people that can do that probably in Hawaii alone 
on some base level, but many multifamily offices and wealth management firms fail to advise at all on cash flowing commercial real estate, hard assets, direct investments into operating businesses. And it's a huge blind spot for the industry to the extent where with our advisory solution at Sense the Millionaire Advisors, we are only helping with the direct investment portion. If somebody wants the full balance sheet solution and the defensive wealth management portion, we have a $6 billion family office partner, then we can do that together in conjunction with them. But we're just providing the piece that we feel like everyone else is not providing to these families. And that's the type of stuff that requires more intra-month you know, conversations back and forth. It's not just plug and play like, oh, I'll take your $7 million. We'll diversify it across you know, uh, one of our normal portfolio breakdowns based on your investment policy statement. And you know, we're good. And we'll adjust each quarter and tell you how we're doing. That's more of a, a efficient thing that you can scale. But people like yourself, people that once they get to five, seven, 10 million, they want to do direct investments, I found very commonly. All right. From based on what you see, guy listens to the podcast, they're about $5 million net worth. They're kind of getting up to retirement ages and you know, definitely a lot of this stuff of passing down the baton. And then they just don't know where to start. I mean, how many hours do you think someone like an advisor would be able to get them up to speed and something that they would be looking for? Right, right. Um, I think that it can be pretty intensive work, depending on the complexity of the client. They might need to do four to five half-day meetings to make sense and come up with a game plan of what needs to be done. And then based on the complexity of that game plan, you'll need to engage one or two other solution providers. You might need a higher quality CPA, you might need a great estate planner or a tax attorney. And then the carrying out of the actual investment management plan could take four to nine months or, or even a year to get things allocated in the right areas. When it comes to direct investments, it's not a good thing to get allocated all at once. You know, as the market fluctuates, you want to be at different entry points. You want to make sure you're investing in the best deals possible, not just rushing in and allocating all $7 million to what's in front of you right now. You always want to have some liquid for a great opportunity. And the real estate market's been going up so long, a lot of families want to stay, you know, 10, 20, 25% fully liquid. So when the market goes down, they can be fully allocated and not before that point. Right. So the reason we brought Richard on the podcast is just to tell you guys a little bit about this sort of industry as you're building your network so you don't get stuck at the end. <laughs> All these deals, but I don't know what to do with it after. So do you think anything right. else we, uh, we missed, Richard, that would kind of help the folks as a journey through, through the one and then the three and then the $5 million net worth levels? Yeah, I think that just bringing it back to playing a unique game, making sure everything is integrated and aligned and what you're spending your time on, who you're working with, where you're based, where your investments are, what industry they're in, and then making sure you're playing the, a long-term game. A lot of families position their portfolio. So inevitably, whether it's 10, 15, or 20 years, they have a great wealth accumulation. So just setting things up so you're doing well long-term because it's not like the stock market and what's happening with Tesla stock. It's not like you're managing Tesla and have to do quarterly earnings reporting. Most people listening to this have a 10, 20-year time horizon for retiring, for you know building up to that $10 million goal, which I know a lot of people at one to five, eventually their goal is to be worth $10 million. So I think that making sure you're playing a game that long-term is very sound and you're high conviction on will make you more energized to take action on it and, and really put energy into making that game work. All right. Well, thanks for coming out and talking to us poor people a little bit. We'll get there eventually. Uh, you guys yeah, can yeah. Google Richard Wilson and family offices. He's all over there. So that'd be the way to get a hold of him. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me here, Lane. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Take care.
This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.